Open up that crystal Pepsi and get comfortable. This is Dope Nostalgia. So good to have you here today, everybody. My name is Naomi, your host of Dope Nostalgia, and my special guest today is a drummer in one of the most influential bands in the punk rock grunge era of the time, Meat Puppets. Formed back in 1980 in Phoenix, Arizona, I'll tell you more about them. Derek Bostrom is their drummer, and he's here with me today to talk about all the amazing things that they've done throughout their career. Here's a little bit of information on the Meat Puppets. Wikipedia Moment! Please bear in mind that Wikipedia is not to be taken as actual 100% fact. Any donkey could edit it at any time. If I'm reading you the artist's bio, that stuff is a real truth. Meat Puppets are an American rock band formed in January 1980 in Phoenix, Arizona. The group's original lineup was Kurt Kirkwood on guitar and vocals, his brother, Chris Kirkwood, bass guitar and vocals, and Derek Bostrom on the drums. The Kirkwood brothers met Bostrom while attending Brophy Prep High School in Phoenix. The three then moved to Tempe, Arizona, where the Kirkwood brothers purchased two adjacent homes, one of which had a shed in the back where they regularly practiced. Meat Puppets started as a punk rock band, but like most of their label mates on SST Records, they established their own unique style, blending punk with country and psychedelic rock, and featuring Kurt's warbling vocals, Meat Puppets later gained significant exposure when the Kirkwood brothers served as guest musicians on Nirvana's MTV Unplugged performance in 1993. The band's 1994 album, Too High to Die, subsequently became their most successful release. Featuring this song right here, called Backwater, the band broke up twice in 96 and 2002, but reunited again in 2006. And to get a real detailed history of this story, this is an amazing interview. He has so much to share. Guys, welcome to Dope Nostalgia Podcast, Derek Bostrom. So my name's Naomi. Welcome, Derek, to Dope Nostalgia. Hi, really Naomi. Hi, fans. Hi. <laughs> you, uh... Became a group way back in the 80s, early, early? 1980, um, Kurt and I, actually in late 79, Kurt and I realized that we could probably play together. Um, I was uh, getting ready to quit my job, and Kurt uh, um, had uh, quit, been fired from his, uh, he had been uh, frustrated in his attempt to join proper bands because he was too crazy. And I was like, dude, crazy is good, because I was into punk rock. And he was still trying to like do, I don't know, wedding bands, bar bands. Mm -hmm. And um, he was had been summarily rejected and had given up the guitar and was playing the drums. And I was like, in the band that I conceive of, you will be able to do whatever you want. And he was like, wow. So we started a very cool kind of punk rock bands uh, by learning how to play all of my punk rock records or some of them, the, uh, the subset that we could play. And then slowly but surely moved on from writing simple rudimentary punk rock songs to Kurt getting into slowly but surely finding his own vision. 
we did a series of records on the label SST, uh, which is uh, uh, achieved legendary status. The leader of that that label, Greg Ginn, is a big proponent of helping out the uh, homeless cat population in California, believe it or not. Oh, and uh, then we jumped ship after we realized that we were uh, exhausted from traveling on a shoestring, touring constantly, putting out records uh, into the uh, ether, to the vacuum, as it were. So we made the jump to a major label much to our later chagrin and then began to play the game. And that is those are the, the early nineties are what uh, Kurt and I have come to call the lost years when mm -hmm. we uh, had to hire a manager, take on debt, let the label tell us what to do and lost kind of uh, lost um, touch with what we, what we had started doing it for and then through a series of overexposures to um both other people's audiences and hard and the, the, those bands as hard narcotics one of our members uh experienced a protracted period of drug addiction which he recovered from during that same period i split got married got a real job and then through a series of happy circumstances, I rejoined the band and we've been enjoying it ever since until of course COVID, which uh, has made it very, very difficult to remount um, a, a tour strategy. Uh, while we haven't put out a proper studio record since 2019, we have released at least one live record and I'm in the process of getting out another live record basically using our uh, the first live, live record we did was um, a series of recordings that we did in 2019. Mm -hmm. This one is actually this new one is actually something that was done at the request of our label, which is to comb through some of our live archives and collect some of our coolest country songs, which we used to do from the 90s. And um, so I compiled something which will be called Camp Songs, which will just be covers of uh from some of our um from our early 90s which is um not only a nice piece of history but also a recognition that uh we have become in the eyes of uh your probably definitely your gen z's but possibly your millennials as well nothing more or less than a bunch of red state rockers a bunch of white guys who play a bunch of white uh, rock and roll music that nobody in their right minds cares about over the under the age of 40. So <laughs> yeah, as you can, so as you can imagine, um, we like 90s nostalgia as much as anybody because that was during our both our highest and our lowest period. Do you have a question? <laughs> you have covered so much ground right there. That's um, my overview for you. Dig in. I I know the one thing I found about being a 90s nostalgic podcast is talking to people who are in rock music. They have some of the stories that will break your heart <laughs> because it was a tumultuous time for rockers, whether it be someone who's in a hair metal band or in a grunge band or whatever it was. It was just there was so much so much of a time for change. Well, yeah, um, we um, we slugged it out in the trenches for years and we always felt that we had something to offer 
that we were like significant, um, but we were just too rough around the edges and not commercial enough. And mm -hmm. I suppose it'll take 20 years after we're all dead for people to come back around and and appreciate it as much as, as we might, if at all. But, mm -hmm. you know, first we saw, you know, the first wave um, in like 85, uh, the Husker Dues and the re replacements of the world started getting major label deals. And of course, at the time, major label deal was the bomb. Mm. Um, the replacements um, never really found their niche. Obviously, uh, REM did really well. Um, then the Chili Peppers started coming in and kicking it out of the park. Jane's Addiction made a huge splash. We still couldn't get... Um, you know, a, a dance. We had actually uh, gotten as far as the office of a fella named Gary Gersh, who was a uh, an important executive in, God, I cannot remember the label anymore, unfortunately, but he basically propped his uh, shoeless feet up on the desk and told us that he couldn't market us because we were not marketable enough, but he really, Christ, uh, I, I, I should have done my 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 memory. One of these bands that were like two boys that looked both both looked the same, um, and he was like, "These guys are easy to market. You guys are impossible to market, so we're going to have to pass." So we kept slogging it out. Um, the reason we ended up getting signed is because so many bands, so many bands during the '80s in our club uh, were. A, had a, a built-in audience. We had spent 10 years or so working hard, you know, touring constantly, putting out records on independent labels. And finally the the the, the big labels are like, we're gonna we're gonna sign these guys because we they've already done all the AR work for us. Mm. And uh, they have a, a built-in audience. We're not doing anything but cream off, scoop off the cream and then uh get rid of them when we're done with them. And uh, it became almost impossible to work in the independent uh, realm because so many of your top level artists were getting signed to majors, thus depriving our independent network of both for distribution of, of records and all the labels and also um, clubs, they were, their, their major earners were being pulled out of them you take a, a label like SST, they would maybe release 20 records over the course of a cycle. Mm -hmm. You know, a few of them were like their top A-list artists, but they're also trying to break new ones. So inevitably, you're going to go to your distributor and you're going to go, look, here's my slate for this, this time. We'll give you a great break on the new Meat Puppets, but really we need you to look at some of our new artists. Well, without those like Meat Puppets or whatever, the, the, the distribution companies couldn't sell them. Eventually they started going out of business. And next mm. thing you know, the labels are, labels are being, um, they're losing, you know, the, the all money that they're being owed by the distributors who are going bankrupt are not, not getting them. So the, the network starts to fall apart and we're getting to the point where the bands that are opening for the meat puppets whom we've never heard of, even back then we were old farts, um, we're like getting like having like major label people coming back and schmoozing them and their records would be in the, in the record stores with all the posters and everything and the displays in the windows. You couldn't find our records. So we were like, we're killing ourselves here. So we signed to the major and we found, you know, the best deal we could. Um, and, uh, but inevitably, even though we did manage to get a gold record and, um, 
lots of um, smoke blown our blown up our ass by uh, you know the distribution wings of our major labels. At the end of the day, after working our asses off to get a gold record for um, for too high to die, we ended up hugely in the red to the labels, hugely in hock to them, and um, mm. at the end of that, they were like, "Yeah, now we own you." And we had literally had to pay them to get, we had to buy our contract from them for no small amount of money. And, um, but in the meantime, the band had already broken up and, you know, we were like just kind of in the wind with no real, real chance. We were, the three of us weren't really dealing with each other. Kurt ended up having to try to, to pull the, the, the strings back together uh, on his own. And it wasn't until years later that the, the, the three of us got back together and um, now we're having a wonderful time as an independent uh, group. Um, we're uh, we're just we have I just delivered uh, like last week um, ten records to our current label, which is Megaforce, who are out in New York, who have been very cool with us. Um, don't don't uh, harass us at all about what we want to do. Don't even talk about the no doubt substantial pile of money they're losing on us. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and, you know, we're, we're gonna, we're, we're, you know, giving them our, our back catalog or we're getting ready to re release our back catalog through them. And, um, while we have released our back catalog a couple of times, we got it back from our, from SST in the early or in the late nineties, at which point I put together a, uh, a, you know, a comprehensive reissue program with lots of bonus tracks, the kind of stuff you would you would expect nowadays. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, now what we're basically doing is releasing the CDs as with the bonus tracks intact, but we're releasing the vinyl versions in their original format. Oh, wow. Re-releasing our first 45, our seven inch EP, which we released in 81 as a seven inch. And we're also going to, um, it'll also be available as a bonus track on the first album, which it was for years. And we're also reissuing our live album that I put together in 1998 called Live in Montana. The first record we did from our, you know, many, many crates of board tapes, which we recorded over the years and expanding it into a two record set with some bonus tracks. Uh, it was never released on vinyl before because we had dealt with Ryko, who, um, speaking of 90s nostalgia, was one of your first C actually, actually, that's 80s nostalgia, your first CD only record labels. Do you remember uh, when Ryko came out? Um, they had David Bowie, they had uh, Frank Zappa, I think, and um, they were like, CD, remember, there's this whole new great new thing about CD. So a lot of these records seem yeah. to come out when vinyl through them so we now own that stuff so we're doing a vinyl only live in montana and the camp songs record is also probably going to be vinyl and streaming only don't get me started about streaming <laughs> it's not a fun topic <laughs> streaming is definitely well if you're not talking to people who worked in the 90s you're probably having grumble grumble the uh I just uh, finished reading a really wonderful book by uh, Cory Doctorow and his co-author, oh, Rebecca Git Gitlin, I think, called Choke Point Capitalism, mm. about all the wonderful ways in which the man is using technology to um, further uh, 
put the screws to the creative uh, class, as it were. Mm. And it's a, it's a real, real interesting uh, book. It's, it's not anything that, um, that I didn't know before, but it's nice to like go here, read this. If you want to know why meat puppets aren't coming to your town this month, here, read this. So, and that, you know, brings us to a whole nother thing is like, um, now that social media is free, uh, the idea of using anything else besides Facebook to promote your uh, your art is uh, is unheard of. And back mm -hmm. in the old days, I literally had a I had one of them Rolodexes. Remember those? Yes. Yes. Uh, anytime somebody sent us a letter, I would put their name on a little card and put it in my Rolodex. I might even still have it. And um, occasionally, you know, try to send everybody tour, a little postcard with tour dates on it. I even tried to do a little um, a newsletter for a while, which was um, too much for me to handle. It was like when mm -hmm. I got my first computer in 1994, I tried to put together a little um, desktop publishing newsletter mm -hmm. and uh, with mostly with with comics and uh, ads for t-shirts and stuff and what i found was if you're gonna offer to send people t-shirts for money you better be prepared for people to tell you oh i never got my t-shirt and uh, <laughs> yeah. so that, we didn't do that for very long we still sell merch now we have dedicated people who love us as much as uh, the grateful dead's uh employees loved them who will help us um keep keep our stuff afloat and we still sell merch online and stuff like that but unfortunately though we tried to get back on the road last year we all got covid it was like okay we're gonna try to do this without covid oh we all got COVID. <laughs> oh. one of us got very very sick um and oh. we um we realized crap we're old mm -hmm. uh so we are now much more slowly agreeing to do stuff we've got one show for this year that we've we've agreed to do that's a festival out in uh oh where is it is it nevada somewhere i'll i don't remember where it is right off the bat i'm not i'm not prepared to to promote uh that's my, okay my we can look show. it up for, we have, for later we don't have anything else going and what i found was is um a lot of people cancel obviously during the the, the last three years mm -hmm. and really screwed a lot of these smaller promoters and we were trying to um you know we, we're not heavily hooked into the live nation reality we still kind of work we work with the same um booking agent that we started working with in 1984 we started 83 we started working with a fellow named frank riley and um he was uh he, he's been in our court ever since him and his uh in his company high road touring and um, if it weren't for them, uh, I don't know what we, we would do, but they've been very kind to us, very, uh, you know, they, they see the value in a, a band of, of ne'er-do-wells like us, m much in the same way that a young winner would stick with Hunter Thompson long after he was able to, uh, you know, meet deadlines. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, you know, we still are able to go out and, and get good shows, but uh, we really aren't, aren't working a lot right now, unfortunately. Maybe that will change. Well, I'm just glad to know that you guys all got through the COVID experience. Okay. I know it's been rough on the COVID every experience. artist, the COVID yeah. experience. 
Um, I mean, I didn't mind getting it. I've been, I've been much, much sicker on the road. Um, yeah. I always find that if you go to Europe, the uh, if you're not used to Europe, that the European bugs will get you, and they mm. feel even like a common cold. If it's a, the if you're not used to the European bugs, it'll make you feel really crummy. Um, First time ex being exposed to it makes sense, right? Yeah, but um, but COVID was just like, yeah. I just the, my only concern about COVID was when am I supposed to go back to work? Mm. So apparently they're like as long as you're symptomat not symptomatic you can come back to work don't test yourself because if you test positive then we'll have to like not let you work again but you're not you know it's like i was like oh yeah i get it you want mm. us to work so uh, but anyway i'm retired now so uh just about the time i retired is about the time we started um pulling back a lot of our our live uh commitments hopefully we'll we'll start that again because i would you have no idea how much I would love to go out on the road. You can tell I'm just a bundle of passion about my music. Yep, 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 yep. I just love to. I love it. About it. Um, what made you? What made you start playing drums in the first place? Well, the first time I started playing the drums was uh, when I used to take coffee cans and put them at the back on the backs of chairs and play along to my Banana Splits record back in 1969 when I was nine years old. So my mom bought me a pair of, of a set, a very set, small set of children's drums, which my younger brother promptly destroyed. Ooh. I didn't play the drums again until I had a buddy who was really into Jimi Hendrix and he really loved to uh, play guitar. And uh, one year I was like, I should get some drums. And my mom got me another pair of, of Sears drums, which I played until and slowly uh, accumulated more stuff. Meanwhile, that buddy, moved away and the uh, I started playing with the Kirkwoods and uh, I got really into punk rock when I first heard it. I, uh, you know, as an old uh, hippie from uh, a young, old young hippie from the seventies, the I was like, oh, this, this, I get this, I get what this is about. Mm. And uh, I really uh, took to punk rock as soon as I heard about it when I was like 17 and just wanted to, to play. And by the time we're old enough to drink, Bars started to uh, like like let grudgingly let certain uh, bands play, and we were able to like do well. And uh, there were promoters that were doing punk rock, and uh, we were uh, crazy enough to uh, draw a, a a crowd. And uh, we had friends in California, and uh, who had, who were in bands, and they got us shows in California, which let led us to um, you know run into people who wanted to put out records with us. Once we started working with SST, they had a a, a network of, of clubs and stuff because Black Flag had played so much. So we were able to leap, leap onto their touring circuit and we toured with them. We did one tour with them for like six weeks. Mm. Uh, and um, you know, slowly, slowly but surely through uh, nothing but uh, hard work, hard work. Uh, it, it seemed hard to us, but then we were like potheads. So it probably wasn't that hard. <laughs> you probably harder on your podcast than we ever hard worked on our music, but uh, it was hard work. And uh, so, um, I don't know. I just, something about, uh, I mean, I never was super into music when I was a kid, but once I heard punk rock, I like, mm. it all sort of clicked in my head. I was into the Sex Pistols before I'd even heard, heard the Rolling Stones. And yet, wow. yeah, it, 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 I didn't get into the Rolling Stones until I happened to go to a, yard sale where i found like 
a dozen Rolling Stone records for a dime a piece, and I bought them all and uh, slowly but surely figured out what was what. Mm. And uh, even now, I'm not, you know, I mean, not a huge fan of the Rolling Stones, but uh, but either way, uh, I don't know. I just I just got really into it. I really uh, found my niche, and it was it was great because Chris and Kurt are the same kind of losers that I am. They're just like we're not good for anything but each other. We're just not we're not suitable for um, for anything but uh, for what what we do. I'm not I'm 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 not worthy of of talking to you on this podcast, as you could probably tell. Your audience will certainly be able to tell. Um, but uh, <laughs> don't sell yourself short. Come on, <laughs> it's, a, it's a humble brag, I believe, is yeah. what, what we call it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but no, it's just you know, just, I, I didn't play. I stopped playing drums in about 1995, when when 96, when the band co collapsed the first mm. time after um drug abuse and um you know the, the the end of the major label american dream and uh i got a proper job got married did all the things mm -hmm. and um built up my nest egg and then just really started hating it not the marriage part i love the marriage part but the the, the job part uh and managed to slowly but surely uh you know get that uh that off my my back and uh i just just uh loved to play uh the drums um for better or for worse um Kurt, there was a solo ep around that time too wasn't there yeah i did a solo record of like when i was uh, really into bubblegum pop music i did this yeah? music, uh, record um with uh, had an archie's track on it and uh did a version of pac-man fever uh it was cute i, I still have a, a big box of um of unsold copies in in my uh closet which I take out on the road on and see if I can sell a few. Don't. Mm. I don't. Uh, the uh, the um, you know Chris and I uh, still get together and play at least once a week, uh, just bass and drums usually. Um, Elmo, uh, our second guitarist, Kurt's son, is in town. He plays with us sometimes. Kurt lives in Austin. We have mm. a keyboard player who lives in uh, um, Pennsylvania, and he'll come out. He'll drive out uh, a couple times a year and we'll jam. But really. Um, I just I just like to go <laughs> it just doesn't amount to much but it, it it feels good and that's what matters it's your outlet to me yeah definitely doesn't make me make us a lot of money but it sure it's sure a lot of fun and um I can't relate uh I was listening I was like my wife uh, listens to NPR and um she is was out this morning when I got up and I'll get out and Go and um, say hello to the good morning to the cats, and uh, the the NPR will be on. And I was here heard some damn kid uh, <laughs> talking about her new record with all of that NPR uh, vocal fry and, and up talking and all the crap that the the Gen Zs do. And she's like, going, well, I I think that my new record's as good as anything that's out on the market right now." I'm like, "Sheesh, whatever." Um, uh. I don't, <laughs> I was just like I don't I don't relate uh, to uh, the music business at all. I didn't relate to the music business then. Uh, there was there was a time, as I mentioned, when um, you know the replacements and the Husker Du were starting to get a lot of of uh, contracts. And uh, I remember sitting around with my bass player, going, "What a bunch of sellouts! They suck." And he was like, "You don't get it. You suck. They're doing well. 
we're failing. And I was like, you suck too. And we would fight about, um, you know, whether or not we were getting our due or not. I remember, God, one guy um, told Kurt, Kurt was like having to like sit down with these these executives trying to get us signed. And one guy was like going, um, we're going to have to lose the name uh, Meat Puppets uh, if you want to, if we want to sign you. We, we'd love to work with you guys, but we won't, uh, we won't work with a band named Meat Puppets. And some <laughs> other guy was like, you're a good looking guy who fronts a rock band. Would it kill you to pump a little iron? And that, that kind of crap. And um, oh. I, to me, I was just like going, I would rather fail. I would rather live in my mother's uh, ha- bedroom for the rest of my life than work with these fuckers. And mm-hmm. uh, these people, um, some of them really loved us. And they all loved us. But the thing is, is like, and I had the same experience. And you probably have a day job too. You know, the people are pretty nice, but the basic underlying concept that brings us together, the assumption about what we're doing is soulless and evil. The idea that like, well, you know, you're not supposed to talk about what you make, right? Uh, Or you're not allowed to um, complain about this. Or um, if the boss asks you to do something that you're not getting paid for, or wants to not pay you overtime for work, you know, that's just because you have passion. And if you don't <laughs> let them screw you, you're not a team player and all this stuff. And the same thing, um, and again, in this choke point capitalism book brings it home really well. Um, mm-hmm. Cory Doctor is, is a really, really excellent writer. Um, I, I love his stuff. Um, it's just like, you know, you get like you get on the Facebook and you 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 release a, a list of, of dates that you're doing and nobody will like go and go. I love you guys. You guys are the best band in the world. You're better than the Rolling Stones. You're even better than the Beatles. You're even better than Frank Sinatra. But what they will say is, well, why aren't you coming to my town? Or why <laughs> haven't you made it easier for me to be a, a, a soulless consumer? And I'm just like, guys. Start your own band. See what it's like, you know. Right. But it always bothered me, and it definitely bothered me in the '90s. To bring it back to your nostalgic podcast, that <laughs> we were being asked to help feed the our our our, our fans' um, desire to be soulless consumers, mm. and I always felt that it was that that there should be a certain level of friction between the artist and his his or her fan base that you take like take like a, a live situation a jazz situation from the old days if you were if you will it's like the audience is there to provide the basically the audience is there to remove the the net from underneath you right so it's like you can practice, you can play sloppy, whatever. You get in front of people, you actually want to like play good. And it affects, it's like the, the quantum concept, right? It's like something that's being viewed, the act of viewing something alters it, right? You're familiar with that concept? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like having people watch you do your shit changes how it is. And that's the role of the audience. The audience's role is to help us focus what we're doing into something that's real. It's like, I mean, this room here, this is where we, we will play. Chris and I will play here in my uh, office. And mm-hmm. it's fun. We fart around. We enjoy it. Uh, we wonder what's the point. But when you're in front of an audience, 
it's really obvious what the point is. It's like, it's a beautiful thing. And that's what rock and roll is, is so, what makes it so wonderful and so viable. It's like when you're sitting there with the right mindset about trying to fucking open your head up, like to get your head out of the game, to put yourself in the moment and make the, the rock, you know, the, the jungle dance music that's designed to drive Elvis Presley's teenage female fans out of their heads or to make the Beatles fans scream or whatever, that's still viable, but it doesn't happen unless the audience and the band can open their heads up, let it go and just go for it. At which point it doesn't, nothing else matters. And so mm. when I see people on Facebook going, well, you know, I saw you guys in 1982 and quite frankly, I haven't followed you guys since Meat Puppets 2 or whatever. I'm just like going, dude. What's the point of commenting? <laughs> let's what's just the point of going onto anyone's social media to say things like that, though? Well, That's what I don't understand about people. It's early days. It's early, it's 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 viable, right? I mean, it's like it's a it's an amazing situation where we have these platforms where people could get in there and say stuff. It's cool, mm. it's great. It doesn't mean that it's um what I necessarily want to hear or you know, it's, it's not, just it's not productive. No, but you know, there's more to life than productivity. Um, <laughs> it's good that it's discordant. I like discordia. I am mm. a discordian. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that if I hear something, you know, it's the old joke. It's like, are you coming to bed, honey? No, I can't. There's something wrong on the internet. It's like, <laughs> it's just the internet. It's um, slowly but surely we're starting to understand that the internet isn't real. It's not going to make your break your life. I mean, very slowly, but surely I would very much like it if people realized that the internet is a fantasy that people just um, hang out in. And, and it's like trying to make a living off. It's like, imagine if somebody wanted to try to make a living off of me taking my garbage out or something like that. It's just like, come on, um, stop trying to monetize people standing around scratching their asses. It's ridiculous. Um, I, you know, don't visit the TikTok more than maybe once or twice a decade. But um, I come to understand that these young people are like they have their parents managing their like ability to do Michael Jackson dancing for money. They get free t sneakers and money just for like posting dumbass videos that people look at on their phones. Really, when we're in the in the midst of a economic economic and ecological crisis, not to mention the fact that this and this thing that we're recording on right now is a cruel product of extreme exploitation um and um you know bad 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 decisions mm -hmm. and um i see you have a keyboard back there do you play as well not well i'm more of a vocalist yeah but yeah, yeah not I, well i have this one this little guy right here just a little oh, tiny wow. and uh that's just enough for me to fake it if i need to flesh out <laughs> Um, like if, if we do a really cool jam and I just want to add like a, some keyboard noise to it or, or something like that. But uh, yeah, um, I, I mean, as, aside from the, uh, you know, the, the downsides of, of social media, uh, I got into computers, you know, when my, my neighborhood, so, my neighbor sold me his um, Mac, uh, gee, it was like a uh, Mac 
one of the, the Mac twos or something like that um, for like 1500 bucks. And I was like, oh, I love this thing. I, I love to make music on the computer. I love to um, digitize my old, uh, you know, it's like I can make a record at home costing nothing by mm -hmm. just uh, buying a card, digitizing it, giving it to the label. Nobody cares. It's all good. You're only going to sell to about, you know, 500 people even. Even if you're Elton John, you're not going to be selling as much as you did in 1975. But it's it's so much fun. And um, people are uh, are so engaged. Uh, even if you know the, this, even if the Facebook is a little creepy, everybody's got a chip on their shoulder. Everybody's got an agenda. Even your your uh, racist right wing crazies. Um, I've been living with those people my whole life. Um, they they don't fool me a bit by pretending to take the high road. Um, they're the, they're the same. Uh, lovable screw-ups that they were back uh, when um, Catherine Coleman used to send us uh, lies in the mail when I was a teenager. So uh, it doesn't phase me any. And uh, mm. what's cool about it is that even though as much as I hate Facebook mm. um, and as much as like uh, you probably noticed that um, I got tired of people saying, when are you coming to my town? So I put a, uh, a automatic um, response in Facebook saying, yeah, we don't actually check this. Uh, and we're not going <laughs> to respond because most of the crap we get is just like, hey, listen to my record. Hey, why aren't you as uh, as good as you were in 1984? Why aren't you playing in my town and other uh, pointless stuff? But I still every once in a while get an opportunity to chat with a nice person like yourself, which is very cool. Yeah, I mean, I can see that it would be. I mean, frustrating to a point to get a lot of the same mindless type of messages, but it is cool when you meet somebody that uh, actually wants to know about what you're doing and and share, you know? What's frustrating is getting old, sister. Yeah. <laughs> well, obviously, and you we know. we can't I'm, stop doing that, that's for sure. Yeah, no, that's one thing you, you need to come to terms with. But obviously, um, I'm used to doing interviews and I can run off at the mouth um, nonstop. Uh, and I apologize for. No, for I love it. listeners i love you and i thank you so much for being a part of this show and its success over the last two years we have what's called patreon for those who want to support the show financially for as little as one dollar a month you can become a subscriber and get bonus content early podcast release all kinds of cool behind the scenes stuff and more 
There's different tiers of membership starting at only $1 a month. And we even have some special merch for you guys who are in it for the long run. So please join our Patreon. It's at www.patreon.com forward slash dope nostalgia. Ever watch a movie so bad that it made you laugh? We have, and that's what we enjoy at End of the Real. We're just two brothers doing a podcast about bad movies. Sometimes the movie will leave you in tears from laughter, other times pain. From classics like The Room, Troll 2, and B-Movie, bad movies are here to stay. Check us out at endoftherreal.com. Double your Like I mentioned earlier, I'm really into into comics, and uh, there's this one comic guy who uh, I really used to admire back when I was a teenager. And like a couple of weeks ago, I was like, you know what? If he's still alive, which he was, I bet he's done a handful of uh, interviews and podcasts by this point. It's hard hard to avoid it. And I found like 30 podcasts by this guy, and I'll be damned if he didn't say the same thing in every single interview. Everybody asked him the same six stupid questions and he gave the same stupid answer every time and none of them answered the questions that i wanted to ask him which was like you know more nuts and bolts is like how you know how does this affect this what were the constraints you're under whatever and um the last time i did a a, a podcast with some fellas not the last time last one i did was with lydia lunch She's a lifer too. And we were able to find common cause in our mutual hatred for the world, which is wonderful. It was very empowering to talk to, to her. Um, mm. I had never met her before. Not, not, not for decades and decades. But I talked to these guys and uh, when they got to the questions like, how would you categorize your music? And I was like, hold on, full stop. I don't answer dumb questions like that. Let me put it quite that badly. But I was just basically like, yeah, we're not really talking about categorization, really. You don't really think I categorize myself, do you? It's ridiculous. And then um, it's one of those things where they do the interview, then they do the podcast. So they get to like bookend my interview with their own like after the fact uh, stuff, which is hardly fair to the artist, I would say. It was like they get to like comment on what I said after the fact. And they're like, yeah, Bostomer's a little rough on us. And I felt bad because they were creaming all over us. They really uh, loved it. In fact, I learned things about the band that I didn't even know. And I'm in it from listening to them talk about it because they were into guitar. And they were talking about how the, on the album, 
uh, too high to die about all the interesting guitar stuff that they'd noticed that uh, our, our guitarist Kurt does. And I don't know anything about guitar. I'm just a drummer. And I, I felt bad from by, by giving him my standard, this kind of crap you're getting right now. This is like this bombardment of, of Bostrom's uh, key messages. And um, I felt like, you know, uh, I should let other people talk occasionally. Sorry. Eh, makes, <laughs> makes my job easy. I like hearing what you have to say, you know? Thank you. Um, yeah, there are things that um, I definitely want to touch on as far as like the stuff for the three albums that you released as a band in the 90s. Looking back at those three albums, were there some album tracks or deep cuts that you wish you could have had blown up? You know, because obviously Backwater blew up the way it did. Yeah. Were there other songs that you felt that about strongly about? Well, um, we actually didn't much care for Backwater much uh, when mm. when uh, when uh, back then we did the first album, which is Forbidden Places with Pete Anderson, who is um, uh, it was work worked with Dwight Yoakam. And this was before Nirvana had blown up. So the idea of like having us kind of do country punk seemed like a good fit. The mm. label was adamant that we use a producer, even though we'd already always done our own records, more or less, along with Spot, the SST uh, produce, house producer. Mm. And uh, Forbidden Places is great. Um, we did Sam. We did a cute video of it. It was a cute little song. Mm. Um, there wasn't much else on that record that uh, was really that the label wanted to release as a, a single, although they, Pete really liked Nail It Down, which is kind of a, more of a kind of a blues rocker, a little bit more of a, of an ass shaker, uh, not really quite our style, but Nail It Down was pretty cool. That record didn't do anything particularly so trying to get them to agree to do our next record was like pulling teeth mm. they like kept submitting demos to them and they're like i don't hear a single i don't hear a single and yeah. then um <laughs> kurt made the mistake of of uh, sending them a song that i had done that was just kind of a parody of jane's addiction and um they liked that and they wanted to release that. And we were like, that's not a Meat Puppet song. That's not what we do. That's just one of uh, Boston's goofy joke things. But they were like, yeah, but we can sell this. And they can't, but we're not going to do it. And uh, <laughs> uh, it was a big fight. And um, eventually all they would let us do was they were like, all right, you guys are, are a failure. We've obviously failed. What we're going to do is we're going to do a, we're going to, bump you down to one of our subsidiary labels. I don't even remember the name of it. And we're going to let you guys do an EP of acoustic versions 
of some of your classic SST songs, like Lake of Fire, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And um, so, and then in the meantime, Paul Leary had come on board and Paul was doing well. He had done a good record with Butthole Servers, which had gotten a lot of, um, a lot of, of, you know, success. And so he agreed to produce us. So we did that EP of stuff and a bunch of other stuff. And they were like, oh, this has sounded pretty good with Paul. We'll let you continue, provided you put Bostrom's song on there. And we we're like, okay. <laughs> uh, anything to get a record made. And um, so we did the record, sans Bostrom's little song. And then we get down there, we, the, the, the big head of the label comes down and he's like, sounded real good, but where's the, where's the goofy song that we like? And we're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We got that. We're doing that. No problem. And um, then we we, we uh, <laughs> submitted the record without the cute little song. And they're like, you, you bastards, where's our little song? So they made us go back in and spend 15 grand doing this, this song, um, oh. which has never been released. It was, it's just, and the thing is, like, my demo was pretty funny because my shit is pretty focused. But that's my shit. I'm not, not about to... Um, make the band the meat puppets like my little joke shit um so the each version that we tried was shittier and shittier it was just not a meat puppets thing so eventually they're like all right never mind in the meantime they uh they uh talked uh, butch vig who was uh hot at the time into mixing backwater and they put their um their boats behind backwater and they called in their favors and they got Kurt Cobain to say nice things about us. And then um, just by happenstance, we were touring with Nirvana right before they were going to do their Unplugged thing. And mm -hmm. they wanted to learn some e-puppet songs to do them. And um, Kurt was like coming to party. He was a basket case. And they're like, well, why don't we just come on and do the show with you? And he loved the idea of like getting some moral support like that. Mm -hmm. um, MTV was aghast that they brought um, these know-nothing hippies on stage with them. They like, he's like, yeah, I got some special uh, guests that I'm going to bring on. And they're like, cool, maybe it's John F. Kennedy Jr. But instead it was the Mead Puppets. And they're like, ah. Um, but it was good for us, you know, because uh, having being on the unplugged thing made it, made it, suddenly made it possible for the label to sell Meat Puppets. And we got a gold record out of it and backwater did really well, but it's not like it's happens on the strength of, you know, your personal love for this song, which you heard on the radio It's because the label had no other choice. They backed themselves into a corner, backing a, a, a horse that nobody wants to do. And, you know, if you hire, if you, if you sign an artist and they fail, that means you fail. So you got to mm -hmm. like, pull, you got to like call in your favors. And um, anyway, we all, we worked our asses off in 1994 toward the whole year, you know, wound up deeply in the hole at the end, um, did this terrible video for a song called, um, uh, well, it's not a terrible video. It's a nice video. I'm sure it was like horrifically expensive, but for some reason, the director decided to put like stereotypes in it, like sassy black mama and, um, you know, Mexican gangsta or whatever. And MTV is like, this is kind of offensive. We're not gonna, uh, we're not gonna show this. So mm -hmm. we didn't manage to to follow up Backwater with with anything. 
and that just record died. And then, um, interestingly enough, they gave us enough rope to hang ourselves with the next record. At that point, they didn't give a damn what we did. They didn't fight us on anything. They just said, sure, whatever you do, whatever you want, we don't care. Mm -hmm. And then that record sank without a trace. <laughs> and then all the late speechless, like, how did they do this to you? It's like no, they did it to everybody themselves over. Well, it's it's because um, all they wanted to do was, you know, they basically took the cream of 1980s and 90s alternative bands, signed them up, got their short term profits out of them. And those bands that didn't manage to self-destruct, which was like a lot of them, they got rid of the rest of them and they replaced them with artists that were that were like, you know, in the alternative mode, they're the grungy guitars, you know, and the kind of semi rappy beats or whatever. And, uh, you know, they were willing to play the game. They're much easier to deal with. Next thing you know, you got Woodstock 99. What can I say? That's when the new yeah. metal and the post grunge stuff were starting <laughs> right, to right. arise, right? Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's just like, you know, our concept was to actually maybe not do something that we didn't feel comfortable with. Mm -hmm. But then there are people out there who don't even consider that they'll just you know they're just looking for the the, the brass ring um we, uh, i got very sullen during those years <laughs> there was uh the 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 you get to you get into town and um the local rep would show up with a stack this high of slicks which would basically be a, the copy of the cover like 12 by 12 just mm -hmm. the little poster of the cover and a big several boxes of uh, of um, sharpies, and so here, could you sign these? And then they'd be like, after the show, we're gonna bring bring in a bunch of fucking local luminaries to shake hands with you and party with the band. And I'd be like, gotta go. And uh, <laughs> wow. the next morning, Kurt would get up and he'd be like, I had to stay up all night with these assholes, Boston. Don't don't punk out on me on this. Don't make me have to do all the, the partying with these jerks. And like <laughs> you, you're stuck doing it too. And I'm like I'm like I'm I, I'm here to do the shows. You know I can't yeah. I can't burn the, the candle at both ends. But it was mm. just like, and you come to realize, and we would get back home, or you go into the look. It's like I mentioned earlier, like we could never find our records in the record stores. But during the major label period, we found our records in the stores all the time in the used bin because your local reps, we would get a box of them, right? And they would mm -hmm. supplement their income by selling them to the secondhand uh, record stores. It's, it's called, serious? yeah, it's just your standard kind of a thing. It's just so much waste in the in big, big business. Wow. It's just so much waste in big business. And, um, you know, the, the palms get greased by like, you know, who, you know, largesse parties, certainly not on the strength of, you know, my naive uh, desire for us all to get together on stage and go for it. That's the last thing anybody cared about. Anyway, I'm real, I'm not real sorry um, that we don't do that anymore, because honestly, we didn't make any extra money. It just hurt our egos. It made it harder for us to deal with each other as a band. It ended up busting us up. And um, now, now we're like a footnote to Nirvana's career. And nobody, you know, it's like, uh, it's amazing. You go on, on social media, especially on Instagram, and there's always people. So you do a search for the meat puppets. Like you do a search on meat puppets on Instagram. It's like half pictures of Kurt Cobain. 
And the other half are people doing covers of the songs that Nirvana covered on Unplugged, saying, mm -hmm. I'm doing this great um, Nirvana song. And other people would be like, you know, actually the Meat Puppets did that. And they're like, who? That's so, um, frustrating, I'm sure. Uh, well, <laughs> whose you know, whose decision was it to perform those songs in that show? Oh, it was I, Kurt, Kurt, um, Kurt wanted to do it. We had yeah. seen a, an interview with him in Spin Magazine in the summer of 93, talking about how he was having to do this and how he had, um, um, it's like he, he was really into the Meat Puppets too, and Courtney didn't like it at all. He's, he's saying in this interview, and he's like going, so I sat down and played some of these songs for her, and then she got it, and I realized, oh, I have like my own kind of take on this. So he, he figured, you know, it was like, Courtney didn't like the Meat Puppets until he sang them to her. And then he realized, I could do these songs on Unplugged, then I don't have to do quite so much of my own crap, and I'm into them. And they were really into helping other artists. They would like let a, a, one of their favorite bands open with them for them every week. Like we got to do a week with them, and then another band would do it. And so they were doing as much as they can could to promote the bands that they loved. Um, bands like... Uh, the uh, Vaselines, great, mm -hmm. great, uh, great uh, band from from uh, Scotland. Mm -hmm. um, that's just one that comes to mind that we really like here at the house. Uh, so you know the idea of, of him um, bringing bringing the meat puppets to the masses because he felt like it, it it spoke to him. That's great. It's the only money we ever made was from that record. Um, and you know every so often they'll release the deluxe you know, hundredth anniversary of it or whatever. And, uh, you know, a little bit, a little bit will, will trickle down, uh, our way. So it's all good. Um, yeah, it helps in some ways. Yeah. And then, you know, eventually, uh, folks like yourself get around to interviewing us about it. And, um, I, uh, I, I obviously I love to talk about it. So, mm. and I mean, obviously that performance would have been a very memorable one for you, but, that one as well what other memorable performances stand out in your mind well um uh i, I remember there was one show we did um the, the, the really big ones like when you're, you're going to do some sort of event and suddenly it turns into like a huge thing like mm -hmm. we uh, did some uh rock some big big festivals on the the east coast that were amazing because they were like our first shows that were like you know, tens and tens of thousands of people. The Nirvana shows we did with them were great. We played with them on New Year's, on on Halloween, when um, 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 Christ dressed up like Slash, or maybe it was um, uh, Pat dressed like Slash, and uh, and uh, Kurt dressed up like Barney, and they had like a, a battle to the death between Slash and Barney. That was fun. <laughs> and, um, you know, just, I mean, there's so many. Uh, I mean, honestly, the last show we did, uh, we were going to do two shows in San Francisco, and we did the first one. And the second one, we were sick with COVID, so we had to cancel it. We were in the show an hour before going on stage, and we and I realized our one of our guitarists was down for the count, so we had to cancel like an hour before we went on stage. But that show, the last show we did, um, which was just last May, was like great and playing uh, with a five piece. Um, it's tremendous fun. Uh, when we were a three piece, obviously we, we were a lot more spontaneous and we could like crank it out. There's a show, one show comes to mind. I have a video of it. I posted on our YouTube channel of, um, 
when we had finally come to terms with the label to do to work with Pete Anderson, and he came out to see us do a show in uh, it was like January of 1990. It was during the um, the Gulf War, the first Gulf War. And uh, I remember I had a bunch of uh, pamphlets I printed out and I was like, left them at the gig and nobody cared. Most of our audience couldn't have cared less about uh, what was going on in uh, the Gulf. But um, I'm pretty sure we were dosed. And certainly the video suggests to me that we were. And it's like, you watch Kurt and he's just like, how does he how does he ever play guitar so amazingly he's just astounding we're so tight with the record that we hadn't even recorded yet um, the forbidden places but we've been like knocking these songs around for a couple years Mm -hmm. and we're doing this stuff basically to show our new producer what we're about and it was like crazy it's like kurt would like he played with a quarter back then and he would keep his quarter like kind of no like tucked between his two fingers they would do this crazy finger picking thing and then he would grab the the, uh, the 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 quarter and do these insane power chords with his uh, using the pedals and stuff like that, and then go back to finger picking. And then we would like turn to each other and go, "All right, speed up!" And we go go faster, 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 faster. And then it would go as fast as it can, and then we go turn the whole thing into stars. And just you know, it would it would build into like this like volcanic explosion of noise, and then it evolved into like 20 minutes of this insane psychedelic noise and theater because we would be like um you know telling jokes and riding around on each other's uh shoulders and stuff like that while still playing and making horrendous faces and um the audience is just going nuts and uh afterwards our new producer says oh i can see why uh nobody wanted to sign you and then we he's like we're gonna to have to get you guys uh, in uh, in early before we do the recordings to rehearse. And he tried to crack the whip on us. And um, the boys pulled him aside and said, "We ain't having that. That's not the way this is gonna go down, motherfucker." And um, even still, he flew all the vocals and did all the auto tuning and all that stuff, and made us use the click track. And then you know, mixed it in a eh, kind of, I don't know, mainstream sort of way. It's still a great album, don't get me wrong. But um, the, the, the it always strikes me, the, the contrast between the show that we did to show him what we were about and what he took from it was so, you know. And um, another time we were in New York playing at like uh, wet, Wetlands, I think was the name of the club, something like that. And... Um, we were um, we would like play our show, and then if we had a hair up our ass, we'd play another show of songs we didn't know. <laughs> we would just like jam for like twenty minutes for an hour, whatever, forty five minutes. Sometimes it would come out good, sometimes it didn't. And I remember our manager, who we'd been we'd been forced to hire a manager once we'd signed up with a label. He comes back, you know, we know this guy for like you know six months, and he says, "All oh, the label people left. You guys are going to have to stop doing those extended." Uh, encores of songs you don't know you guys need to just stick to 50 minutes of your best material and we're like <sighs> and, then, um, and then and then we uh, <laughs> we went on tour with stone temple pilots and mm. that now it's not wasn't steel wheels but it was still they had a lot of employees that a lot of people working for them a full office staff 
and definitely a guy standing on the side of the stage with a watch going and uh, uh -huh. it's like you are off after 40 minutes not 40 minutes and 10 seconds 40 minutes so i used to bring a watch on stage and have our set timed and about halfway through my bass players like going i want to play different songs i want to do this i'm like dude we have we're, we're, this isn't our show we have to play what what we you know we need to like stick with this it was great because we had um we were doing like it was a killer set we had like this nice little 20 minute hunk of acoustic stuff we did and then we did this raucous stuff and we ended with a big splash of like improvisatory noise it was a really nice little set but we did it every night for six weeks so uh it, it got gets a hard. Bit... it gets boring it gets dull for you you know your creativity no that's just... the challenge the challenge is to not make it boring damn it <laughs> can you do that you change it up you change the songs up enough that it gets keeps it interesting for you no, you just make sure there's somebody there uh, at, at the side of the stage right before you go on that's got a, a couple of lines for you. <laughs> um, no, uh, um, no, uh, it, it's a long career. We started in 1980. Um, you know, we stopped in 96. I took a couple, uh, you know, we, the whole band took a, a break. Kurt, got, Kurt and Chris got back together in like 2006. I joined about 10 years later. Um, we got a lot of records out. Um, People love us. Uh, people like yourself, who I've never met before. Honestly, people, she and I have never met before this time. It's true. Uh, uh, know who I am, um, and now I know who you are. And um, mm. it's fun. It's, it's fun to do. It's weird because that's not, this is not the, what we're doing here, this is not the world that, that, that most people live in. We get to uh, have a, a, a lot of, of fucking fun um, making art and making music. And, um, if you don't, if you happen to be the kind of person who's not just in it for the money or for the lulls or for whatever, you can explore art in an interesting way. You always could. Um, when the money men come and come in, that usually means the party is over. Mm. But you can um, you can easily, um, you know, a lot of places that have parties will have a fire extinguisher, and you can pull it out and spray it in the man's face and he will leave you and then you can be free again. I believe free that was be a, that's, your creative that's, self. Yeah, that's another, that's... Uh, I believe that's another fun uh, show that we did with the Chili Peppers who were popular at the time and we were doing a show with them. And at the end, it was like, everybody came on stage to jam or whatever at the end. And I believe um, one of my boys uh, found the fire extinguisher out, out back and started spraying the fire extinguisher around on stage. Chili Peppers <laughs> weren't into that so much. Oh, I thought they'd be more fun. <laughs> well, fun's fun. <laughs> anyway, um, my voice is starting to give out and I have oh, to pee. Okay. So unless that's you have okay. a I was going to wrap things up right away. I just wanted to say I learned a lot from you today. And I mean, I'm glad that you are now in a situation where you guys can truly express your creativity without the man saying you're out of time. Or the woman. They're not or all the men anymore. True. Well, that's that's a good thing. But, <laughs> you know. I'm glad you're in a position now to really explore what you want to do with music and be and, and express all that talent that you guys have the way well, you I, want. Well, the point I, I want to make is that uh, we all should be doing that. You know, mm -hmm. it's not just nice that I can do it. It's we should all spend a lot more time exploring the, the outer edges of what we think. Um, the, the world is really kind of closing in on us. You know, I'm old enough to remember when we weren't all just waiting for the end of the world. 
I remember when Elvis is waiting for the end of the world song came out and mm. uh, I've been waiting for it as long as I've, I've been around. But back when I was uh, growing up, we didn't just assume that the world was going to fall apart. Mm. Um, I consider the fact that the world is going to fall apart to be a huge opportunity for everybody to give it up. I remember once um, I saw Hunter Thompson uh, and uh, somebody was like, He's always, he only was like, he didn't talk. He was just field questions from the audience. And somebody was like going, what do you think are the, the, uh, the, the, the causes that would cause our today's young people to, uh, to get as, as passionate as they were back in the sixties. And he's like, there's never ever been more than one or two causes ever worth being passionate about since the history of humanity, you know, just get into it, just deal with it. And the kid was like, but what about the war? What about civil rights? He goes, what about reality? You know, I'm just going to keep on, on, on banging out there and pretend that I'm still in my 20s. And I recommend that uh, at the end of this, uh, this interview, you turn around to that keyboard of yours, despite the fact that you aren't very good at it, and get into it, man. That's a good, uh, a good reason to get back into it. I thank like you very it. much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. Hey, and thank you for sharing your amazing stories with me and my listeners. I'm really happy that you had the time to do that. Now you can go to the washroom. <laughs> thank you, ma'am. Uh, in, enjoy your, your, your the rest of your lovely Canadian day. I would thank I would, you. Would, uh, would try to move to your lovely country, but uh, I'm a desert rat and I can't stand the cold. All right. Well, if you guys get on the road, though. Let me know. Sure Bring, make it, me make up. it up here. I, I will. I wish. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Let me just go on record for saying I would like to be in, visit everyone's town. Yeah, that's true. For... Right. <laughs> okay, you take care. Thank you right. so much, Derek. Thanks, Naomi. Bye. Bye. Social media, yeah, we've got it. Send us an email, dopenostalgiapodcast at gmail.com. Twitter, Nostalgia Dope. Or on Insta, dope underscore nostalgia. This podcast is licensed by SoCan because we believe that artists should be paid for their work.